You're listening to a sermon podcast from Paramount Church in Columbus, Ohio. To learn more, visit ParamountColumbus.com. Well, good morning. It's always great to be with you. If you have a Bible with you, I would love to invite you to open that to the book of Galatians. We've been working our way through the book of Galatians, kind of at a a little bit of a faster pace than maybe we would normally, um, but just felt like it would be good for us to spend a little bit of time thinking about this as a church. And so if if you're with me, what I'd like to do is just kind of begin here by reading the verses that we're going to be looking at this morning in Galatians chapter 2. So we're reading Galatians chapter 2, beginning in verse 11, and here we read this. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of some men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and and separate himself, fearing those from the circumcision. The rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in the presence of all, if you, being a Jew, Live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews. How is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? We are Jews by nature and not sinners from the Gentiles. Nevertheless, knowing that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Since by works of the law, no flesh will be justified. But if, while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have also been found sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Far from it. For if I rebuild what I have once destroyed, I prove myself to be a wrongdoer. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. This here is an incredible passage. And I think you can get lost sometimes on first reading and maybe some of the, some of the confusing things that are, that are happening. We're obviously being told here about a story. It's something that, that maybe the audience or the, of the original hearers of this letter might have had some familiarity with, this incident that happened at Antioch. And without knowing exactly what that is, we'll have a hard time understanding it. I mean, then, you know, Paul, he just, he, he, he thinks at this, you know, kind of high-level theology And it can sometimes be a little bit hard to wrap our minds around it. But that's our task this morning, is to try to understand exactly what's happening here. I want to suggest to you that understanding a passage like this in Scripture is absolutely crucial for our understanding of the Christian life in general. In fact, if I were to lay out maybe a top five of of, of chapters, sections of Scripture, passages, that I would want to make sure that that we all understood as a church together, this might well make that list. And the reason it might make that list is because of the name of our church and what we have set to make this church about. We are right now together. This is Paramount Church. Now, originally in the first century, they didn't have church names, right? That wasn't really a thing that they did. 
It's not a thing that's forbidden, but they were just the, the church in the city, and the, people, the believers in that city would gather together. Or it would be the church that meets at so-and-so's house, right? And we still have community groups like that. That's how we name our community groups. The one that meets at the Turnipole's house, the one that meets at the Koval's house, right? That's still kind of how we do that. But here in our day and age, we have the ability, and, and it's not a bad, or, bad thing or anything, we can, we can name a church. We can say, you know what, if we want to say what is the particular focus that we feel that the Lord has for us to, to set aside in this community, for us to say, what do we want to say? How do we want to proclaim it? We've said that it's Paramount Church here. And the idea is not uh, Paramount Plus or Paramount Pictures. That's not what we're after. The idea is that the gospel is Paramount. The first chapter, the, fir- or the first place that we would go in Scripture is a place like uh, um, in, in 2 Corinthians. We would want to see, or 1 Corinthians, I'm sorry. We would want to see that the gospel was of first importance to Paul. But one of the things that we say together as a church is that the gospel is not just the thing that we get at the beginning. It's not just that we believe it and then we move on past the gospel. Instead, the gospel isn't just, some people have said, it's not just the ABCs of the Christian life, it's the A to Z. We don't get the gospel and then we master that and we move on to all the other really advanced theological concepts. All of that stuff is a continued outworking and a deeper understanding of the work that God has already done in saving us. That is what it is all about. And I want to suggest to you that even in our lives, the difficulties that we run across... Many of you, I know from talking to you, have had difficult times in the last several months. There, there can be situations that we have that are hard to try to figure out. What am I supposed to do in this situation? How am I supposed to live in response to this coworker? How am I supposed to live in response to this relative? How am I supposed to live in a way that honors God when the world is, is saying this and I'm getting this on social media and the work says I have to do this? What am I supposed to do? And I want to suggest to you that even in that, and especially in that world, where we feel that, where everything's like a puzzle that we have to try to figure out, that we actually have the answers that we need already within the gospel. It's like an amazingly told story where the, the opening line, the opening couple of, couple of lines give you all the information that you need, but it just takes the rest of it all to work out. I was imagining it almost like a... Um, like an escape room kind of situation where you're given just a, a clue and a, and a couple things to, to then try to figure out. You have everything that you need when you entered. You just don't know how to use it yet. You don't know how it all applies yet. And, and the gospel is very much like that. We have everything that we need at the point of salvation, but we have to work at it together. We have to understand how to live it. We got to understand how it applies to this aspect of our life and that aspect of our life. And that's why, this is, that's why this is a passage that we need to hear, because I think this is one of the clearest places in Scripture where we can see one of the apostles telling the others and speaking to the early church about the gospel as something that needs to be followed up on and lived out in real life. We'll see how that happens. So as we said, Paul here is giving an account. He's talking to the Galatians, but as part of this whole picture of what he's doing, he's, he's telling about this story that happened at Antioch. Now, don't be confused. Uh, you know, multiple people in the New Testament have multiple different names. So we know that Peter was called Cephas, and um, that's what Paul calls him here. If you have a, a, a heading here in the Bible, in your Bible, it might tell you already that that's Peter. He calls him Cephas. 
Um, there may be reasons for that. It, it might be an uh, argument. It might be some, there might be something to that. Don't know about it. That's just what he calls him. Don't be confused. He's talking about Peter. That's Cephas, okay? Previously, we've already seen in the chapter from last week that Paul went and talked to Cephas. He went to talk and talked to Peter. Um, we know that one of the earliest conflicts in the church was this trying to figure out how do people who were Jews beforehand and obeyed all the laws, they kept the food laws and, the, and, all, the, and obedience to all those things, how do they now live with Gentiles who they weren't even supposed to eat with before? If Jesus, if Jesus is explicitly telling his followers, I want you guys to eat a meal together. I want you to do this together. This is one of the things you're going to do. Now, there's a conflict very early on when one of the rules that this community has is we can't eat with them. That's not something we can do. We got to stay separate. That's, that's what causes this conflict that's here. And we already know from the book of Acts that it's something that's been dealt with. It's something that's been talked about. And they've essentially kind of said that it's fine if you keep the food laws. You can do that. You can also not if you're a Gentile. And it works either way. It doesn't, it doesn't make a difference. Your salvation, your identity in this community is not based on what you eat or don't eat. It's based on your faith in Jesus. So um, we know that foods have been called clean. We know that the gospel was calling for this unity across Jews and Gentiles. And we could see um, previously even that there are, uh, the, the topic of circumcision came up. And Paul sort of said the same thing. You, you can do it, you cannot do it. Depends on the context, what, why you would or why you wouldn't. But here we now have this situation where Paul's describing that Peter used to eat with the Gentiles in verse 12. He used to do that. But then this, these people came from Jerusalem. And these are people who were, who were more on the side of, well, the Jewish believers, they shouldn't be doing that. And rather than continuing to, to do what he had been doing, demonstrating that the gospel breaks down these barriers, instead what he does is he says, oh man, they're coming. I better, I better pretend like I wasn't doing that. I'll just go over here and eat. And I won't, I won't be a part of that. And Paul, rather than just let him do it, calls him on it. He says, no, wait a minute. One of the things that we had said, specifically that we had understood from Jesus, was that the walls between Jew and Gentile are broken down. The walls that separate between races are broken down. The walls that separate and these cause these divisions are gone now. And there's a new unity that should be demonstrated in the people of God. And Paul's saying that's what should have happened. But what he does, so Paul tells Peter that he's being a hypocrite. He's saying that he's living one way, uh, but he's calling other people to do something different. But I love the way that he says it. Look with me in verse 14. The, uh, we'll, we're going to look at a few different translations here. The New American Standard 2020, which is what I'm reading from here, says, when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel. I think we have something different up here. Verse 14, is it there? They were deviating from, is what you, thank you, on the, in the, um, the Christian Standard Bible. ESV, if you're reading it, is going to go with in step with. KJV goes uprightly according to, which is an interesting choice. Acting consistently with, New Revised. The word here is, is orthopedusin. The, the word could almost, if you're going to try to strictly translate, is like straight walking. You know, you know, walk straight, well, we wouldn't say straight walking. That's not, a, that's not a phrase we would use. 
But the sense that it's getting at, and you can hear it in some of these translations, is that the gospel almost creates a line, a trajectory. Paul's saying to Peter, you're not walking in line with the gospel. And so the picture is almost like, you know, if you're, if you're one of these like construction types or something like that, maybe you've used like a laser level, this thing where you, you, you set it up and then it shoots that line straight away across the, across the whole room. Paul's almost saying the gospel is a little bit like that. At the point of salvation, it starts and this line shoots across your entire life. And there is now a straight line through your life that this is the way that you walk. This is the path that you walk now because of the truth of the gospel shining on your life now. And so having that line in place gives, uh, starts at regeneration, and it's an outline. It's a path. It's a line that you can walk straight down, that you can deviate from. So Paul's saying, Peter, you're, you're deviating from this line. You're not walking in line with the gospel. This isn't, so what you said when you believe the gospel is not how you're living now. Brothers and sisters, that dynamic right there, if you and I can get that in our discipleship relationships, in our community group relationships, that is going to be life transforming, absolutely life altering. Because if we can learn to be able to call one another on, no, you said you believe the gospel, but you're living like this. You're not in line with the gospel. And then we practice together at repenting when we get it wrong and walking back in step and living that way. It will be an amazing thing. I want to suggest to you that this kind of line across our life that the gospel casts, this way that it directs us and leads us, it gives us this path to walk down, can, can lead us through the most difficult decisions of life. It can help us to, to, to live the way that we are supposed to live in life. They're good works that God created beforehand so that we might walk in them, Paul says in Ephesians. But immediately when we land on this, when we talk about this, we start to, to run into the difficulty of how does the law fit in with how we live as believers? And this is, this is going to lead us to exactly what we need to talk about first this morning. But what I want to suggest for us this morning is that this line that's created by the gospel this walking in line with the gospel. It is a kind of, uh, it's, it really is a new reality. It, it makes everything different. So that, uh, let's think about it this way. What if I told you that I had a particular new program? And what we could do in this program is I could guarantee you a minimum monthly income of $10,000 minimum. Got it. You can still earn and do other things, whatever. That's fine. $10,000 minimum monthly income. Okay. Sounds pretty good. We might be able to start there. Now, here's the catch. You don't have to move anywhere. You don't have to give up your family. You don't have to change really anything about your life that you don't want to change about your life. Here's the things that you're going to have to do though. You ready? Here's the catch. You can't use any pay phones. Pay phones are right out. I'm not going to let you have pagers or laser discs or floppy disks, they're all out. Can't do it. Who's in? <laughs> Sounds good. I'm not using any of that stuff anyway, right? Exactly. Why, why does that happen? Why are there no payphones around? Why has that happened in the last 20 years, 30 years, right? It happened because now we all have phones in our pockets, because there's a new technology that we all took on and we all embraced and we all have phones and now we don't need to carry phone money. I remember having phone money. I'm old enough for that. 
got to carry some change in your pocket in case you need to make a phone call. You don't get stuck somewhere. We don't need to do that anymore. I could give my kids, you know, 50 cents and they, what are they going to do with it? (laughs) Brothers and sisters, that is the kind of reality shift that happens when you and I trust in Christ. We don't live in a world that would possibly need sin in it anymore. We don't need to seek justification anymore. We don't need to do those things anymore. They become unthinkable along this new line of the gospel. If we're walking down this path in this way, in that way, we wouldn't even think of doing those things. I'm not about to go buy a laser disc. Unnecessary. That's the way that we need to work on thinking about how the gospel transforms our lives. We don't need sin anymore. It's not that, well, now as a believer, you got to just work really hard and do all the right things and earn your way to salvation. It's not like a reset or something like that. It is something that we no longer need because the entire way that we view the world has shifted so that those things are absolutely useless to us. We'll see in a little bit the language that Paul uses. It's dead. He is dead to those things. They have no power over him anymore. So the gospel creates this line. It's a trajectory for us to walk. And that line takes us into a brand new reality where we don't need any of these things that we used to think that we needed and we used to depend on. And what I'd like to do with our remaining time this morning is try to, try to explore three different ways that it's true that the gospel creates this new reality. How is it that we've stepped out of this world where we thought we needed phone money into a new world where that's not a thing that we need anymore? In the same way as believers, as as you and I, if we have trusted in Christ, we have stepped out of the old person, the old sinful nature, and into a new reality where those things are unthinkable. We don't need sin anymore. We don't need justification by works anymore. So we're going to explore three ways that we have stepped into a new reality as we trust in the gospel and we can walk along this line together. The first way that the gospel creates this line is that the gospel is the source of true justification. The gospel is the source of true justification. You got to love Paul. I love Paul. He he takes this situation where, um, I mean, to put it kind of crudely, people are concerned about who's who's sitting with who in the lunchroom. And he says, ah, I know what this is about. This is about theological justification. <laughs> Hold on a second, Paul. Like, can't you just like tell somebody to, change, to move or something like that? Like, why, why are you going to make everything so big? Well, that's exactly what it is, though. He sees it that way. And for us to see why he does that and why it's so important to us, we need to understand what justification is. So one helpful way of putting it is, is one that comes from the Westminster Catechism, And we can just look at that together. The question is number 70. It says, what is justification? And the answer to that question is, justification is an act of God's free grace unto sinners in which he pardons all their sins, accepts and accounts their persons righteous in his sight, not for anything wrought in them or done by them, but only for the perfect obedience of, and full satisfaction of Christ by God imputed to them and received by faith alone. There's a lot there, as there usually is in the catechism questions. 
you could explore each, each little clause in, in immense depth. But you can see here what justification is. It's an act of God's grace. It's something that he does. And what kind of an act is it? What is he doing? He's pardoning sins. He's accepting sinners. He's accounting those persons as righteous persons, even when they weren't righteous persons. It wasn't something that they did. It's based on the perfect obedience of Jesus Christ. The work of Jesus is counted to sinners like you and me. That's what justification is. It really is a, a term that's used in kind of courtroom sort of settings where you have like a person who, is, who stands condemned and as soon as the, the, the gavel drops and they say not guilty, then that, verdict, that, that accusation of, of guilty no longer hangs over your head. It's done. It's over with. You are justified according to the law. That's the sort of thing that it's, this language is pressing toward us that we should hear. But you can immediately see, I hope, some of the relevant words that are at play here. He accepts them. He accounts them righteous. These become things that aren't just abstract theological things, but that are things that are you and I are after all the time. Accepts them. Everyone seeks acceptance. We all seek to be let in. We all seek to know that we are, we are a part of the group, a part of the crowd. I was just struck, I mean, just to, to kind of look at how much of an everyday occurrence this is. Yesterday, we were at a, a race with my daughter and um, a cross-country event, and I'm walking by, and, and I just happened to overhear a conversation where uh, there's this girl saying that they're ignoring me all day. They won't even talk to me. And I didn't even hear the whole conversation. I'm just passing by. I'm seeing, there it is right there. There's a group of people, and I want to be a part of that group. It happens with you and I at work. It happens with you and I and friends. If you're older and trying to make friends, like if you're in your 30s and trying to be friends, I mean, it's just tough, you know? It's one of those things that I hear people talk about. We work at it together as brothers and sisters. But some of that, some of that is a, is a quest for, for acceptance. We want to be a part. We want to be in. Justification speaks to that. It's also a standard of righteousness, right? which is another thing that we've seen so much in our, our current climate. There are, there's um, you know, name-calling online or on political stages. There's canceling and cancel culture and all those things you hear about. They've got a standard that this is how people should live, and everyone else needs to then live up to that standard perfectly. And if not, you're out. Do we, do we not want to say that's true as a Christian? Absolutely. You know, on the other hand, we, we really do. We want to say, yeah, that's exactly what it is. There is a perfect standard. Guess what? There is, and you don't meet it. Neither do I. And we all need God's grace if we're to meet that standard. That's what justification speaks to us. The standard is real, and you and I don't meet it. Paul's claim then here is remarkable. It's startling. He says, how does this happen? Where, how do we get this justification? He says that we get it not by works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. By faith. That's how you get it. Not because you did something, but by faith. That's how it happens. You get your acceptance you receive the declaration that you are righteous. This comes to you by faith. 
I want to suggest to you, though, that even that doesn't quite push this far enough. This, this language of justification is, is also uniquely tied to the people of God. It, it involves belonging and acceptance that comes from Christ. When we trust in Christ, we're united to him and we become a part of his people. Thinking about the law and the gospel as we have been together causes us to kind of take a step back and think about how does the, the Bible talk about the law and the gospel and how does the Bible talk about how Jesus fits in with all of these things? What is the law? All the way through the law, the earliest, the five books of the Bible, the five first books of the Bible, the Torah, there's a forward-looking covenant. There's a promise from Genesis to Exodus and uh, Moses on the mountain. There's a promise of God's people. It's a locating of on earth that this people, this place is where God is doing his work. In the Old Testament, everything is about Israel. Don't be put off by that. Everything is about the people of Israel, the kings of Israel, the prophets of Israel. But in the New Testament, Israel itself is reoriented around Jesus. That's why Jesus picks 12 apostles, just like there were 12 tribes of Israel. There's discussions about being seated around the table with Abraham. The law itself is reoriented around Jesus. He is the fulfillment of the law. Jesus is the perfect Torah. All the promises of God find their fulfillment in Jesus. The central drama of the story of Israel is resolved in Jesus. The questions that come up in that story are things like, will God be proven faithful or will he just be another tribal deity that can't be vindicated when the true test arrives? Will the serpent's head at last be crushed? Will the exile, that's the experience of every person living outside the garden, give way to a perfect acceptance and inclusion? Will the unrighteousness that, will, that is baked in to every action at last be removed? You know that. You ever think for sure, I'm doing the right thing. This is it. And then what happens is wrong. <laughs> Not what you thought was going to happen. That's a part of living in a fallen world. We all have unrighteousness in our lives. All things are summed up in Christ. He declared that it's finished on the cross. He rose from the dead. There is a new creation in Christ, Paul tells us. The faith that we have in Christ creates a new reality. The payphones are no longer needed. The sin isn't needed. We don't need the law anymore. We don't have to resort to sinful actions. The work that God has done in fulfilling his promises to Israel change everything. It might be good to pause just for a moment and ask ourselves, where are the places that you seek acceptance? How do you interpret your shortcomings? Do you downplay your shortcomings? Say, oh, it's not that bad. I'm working on it. It'll be over soon. Or do you see them as as sin? Peter here has a tremendous choice to make. Paul lays it down for him. 
you can either be viewed as a sinner sinner, because you're eating with the Gentiles, or you can transgress the entire story of what God has done through Jesus by leaving these folks and, and sitting back with the Jews again. You can throw away everything that you believe about the gospel, or you can be viewed as a sinner. It's a, it's a lose, lose, it would seem. But we can immediately see that it's not, right? It's only, on one side, it's only the appearance. If Peter doesn't continue to eat with these folks, or does continue to eat with these folks, he's not actually losing anything, except for these folks that are coming to look at him are going to think, man, I can't believe that guy. And so what, Right? You and I are going to run across all sorts of similar situations. And the question is, what will we do? Will we be concerned about what others think about us? Or will we instead say, no, I'm justified by God, not by them. I don't need that. At some point in here, it's good for us to, to mention the flip side of, of or the, the error of saying that we're saved by faith and not anything that we do. Because the accusation that comes out, if you're sharing the gospel, if you say it's not anything that we do, then what's someone going to say? They're going to say, well, you could, then you could just do anything. Then anybody can get in. And we say, huh, exactly. Anybody can get in. That's right. But you can't just do anything, right? That's not how it works. But people feel like this is a really, really powerful objection, and it's one that doesn't seem to die. It was the big one. It was one of the big ones that called Martin Luther a heretic when he said, no, this is the gospel. It's by faith. It's not by works. They said, well, then you can just do whatever you want. That doesn't make sense. We can't, let, we can't have people just doing that. There are denominations that have come up again and again by trying to add things to what needs to happen. You have to worship like this on this day. You got to do this, and then you got to do this, and this is how you got to live. That's not what the Bible tells us, though. Some will view salvation as simply a kind of a reset. That is, I come to Jesus when I've got all these sins in my past. He wipes me clean, so I've got a nice, clean slate, and now it's up to me to not mess up that clean slate. It doesn't work, because guess what? You and I, we're all going to mess it up again. And God's grace is enough for that, too. That's the message here. That's the message of this sort of justification. It misses all of that by saying, by trying to reintroduce a law, it misses the key thing that we are saying here this morning, the key thing that we all need to hear, and that is that this salvation creates a new reality where we don't need to live that way anymore. We don't want to live that way anymore. We wouldn't live that way anymore. It's a new world where we don't need to manipulate or twist the truth to show how great we are. We're not performing for others. We know who we are. We know who we belong to. If we could fully see, the day that we fully understand all that the gospel means to us is the day that we become sinless. And all of us, that gospel is trickling in to all of these different parts of our lives as we're doing this together. A second way that we can see that the gospel creates this line, this new reality, is the the gospel is a source of true authority. 
We see that the gospel is the source of true justification. It's also the source of true authority. How do we see authority here? What's happening? You can see the central question here in Peter and Paul and these two uh, apostles, these big-name guys, they're arguing with each other over, um, over the truth. We've seen from the previous weeks, last week and the week before, how concerned Paul is in this letter. His primary purpose right now in sharing this is not, look at how great I am. It's that this message, it doesn't come from me. That's what Paul's getting at. This doesn't come from me. He says, Jesus stopped him on the road to Damascus and he was transformed there. And then he, he went away, we saw last week, 14 years, spent time studying, spent time thinking, spent time learning. Then he came back to the apostles to check and hoping that he wasn't running in vain, hoping that he hadn't gotten it wrong. And they affirm with him that, no, you got it. You know Jesus too. Yeah, this is it. Let's, you go out and you share there and we'll go over here and this is gonna, we got this. But then we run across this situation where something's still not, still not working right. And what happens when these guys are in conflict? Peter gets it wrong. He's gotten it wrong before. But Paul here is able to appeal to the truth of the gospel. He doesn't just say, nah, I'm right, you're wrong, Peter. Right? What he does instead is he, is he points back to what Peter has already confessed, what Peter has already believed. If you believe this about Jesus, then the way that you're living does not follow. It's not in line with that. And it creates a, a, the, the, it's a way of saying that the gospel then is this new, higher authority. This was crucial in the Reformation period, right? Because you realize who he's, who he's arguing with. Paul here is coming against Peter. In the Catholic perspective, Peter is the first pope. Peter's the guy who's not supposed to get it wrong. Peter is the one who's supposed to be speaking truth. And Paul is able to come to him and say, uh-uh, got it wrong. How do I know? Look at the gospel. Look at what we believe from Scripture. There's, an, there's a way to be able to acknowledge and see right there that authority works differently then you would think that it works. And so the, the Catholic in, in uh, the Reformation period, they didn't like this argument. They weren't big on that, trying to ignore that. But it's right there. Paul's able to, to argue against Peter by appealing to Scripture, and Peter was wrong. It wasn't just a fake argument or something like that. They, they really were against one another. You and I live in a time period where we don't like authority. I think maybe some of us are, are kind of a fan of Paul here because you know, if Peter's the, the, the big guy, the authority kind of guy, and Paul's able to say, uh-uh, no, you got it wrong. We're like, yeah, there you go, the underdog. Now we're talking. But it's crucial to see that he's not just doing it because the other guy's an authority. That's not the idea here. Authority isn't wrong. In fact, Paul is able to appeal to an authority. Don't let this be a defense of your, of your distrust of authorities. One way that I, that I think is helpful to kind of think about this is a uh, story from some years ago in the earlier days of, of Wikipedia. There was a guy named Shane Fitzgerald, and when a, a musician named Maurice Jarr passed away, he went in and changed his Wikipedia entry, and he added a quotation. 
And it was a quotation about how Maurice had said, uh, one could say that my life has been like one long soundtrack. Music is my life. When I die, there will be a final waltz playing in my head that only I can hear. And everybody was like, wow, that's beautiful. And they lifted it from Wikipedia, and it started popping up in this article, in that article, in that article, in this news media, in this news place, in this news place. And everybody was like, wow, that's so beautiful. Except Shane just made it up. He just added it in there because he wanted to make a point about the, the media of Wikipedia. Now, of course, we've been doing this for a while, right? We know Wikipedia now. If you're a student, you know you're not going to use it for your resources or anything like that. But it's also amazingly good at being fast and pretty darn accurate. You just got to check the resources. But why is it the way that it is? It's because anybody can add to it. There's a page there, and anybody can jump in, and they can add a quote. They can add a statement of fact. They can add something that's there. And it may or may not be true until somebody comes in and checks it. I want to suggest to you that you, your view, your beliefs about the world are like a Wikipedia page. Hear me out. Your, your views about the world are like a Wikipedia page. The things you believe are true are like that. Because you have things that you believe just because somebody told you once in a passing conversation. Your parents explained something to you one way. A pastor maybe said one day, this is how this thing works. And you said, oh, okay. And now you've got a whole grab bag of different things that are true and aren't, and aren't true, and they're all living in your head. Those are your beliefs about the world. Now, what happens then when you and I assume that we are the authority for the world around us? What we do is we start applying a whole bunch of a mix of things. Some of them are true. Some of them are made up. Some of them are half-baked. Some of them we don't even know. You're, you're telling the other people that they have to live this way when your beliefs aren't even really well considered. There are crucial questions about life. Thought I missed something, sorry. What matters in life? Where should you spend your time? Whose voice matters? How do we know what's right? Should I be worried about anything that happens after death? What does human flourishing look like? There are all kinds of questions where guess what? You're not gonna like come up with a science experiment to be able to answer those things. Some of you would hear that they talk about authority and you say, well, let's just throw off all that authority and let's just base our facts on science. Let's do experiments and let's figure out exactly what's right and what's wrong. Look, that can help us understand the world. God has graciously given us that. He said that this will help. But one author said that claiming reality is restricted only to that which we're capable of detecting with our senses is like a drunk looking for his lost car keys under a streetlight because the light's better there. Do you hear the analogy? Can't find my keys. Looking under the light. Where'd you lose them? Over there somewhere. Why are you looking under the light? Well, I can't see over there. That's, that's what it's like when we think, if we think that science can answer all the questions. Can it tell us many things? Yeah, it casts a light on all kinds of spaces. But to pretend like it can answer all the questions that matter is, is false. It won't take us that far. It can't tell us everything that matters. It can't give us that. Not going to happen. But rather than just leave us on our own, the Bible affirms authorities. 
but it gives us a way for appealing and speaking to it. There's an amazing tradition in the, in the Old Testament, the whole, all of the prophets. You have instances like we, we studied Amos together. You have this guy who's, who's not even been to prophet school. He's a farmer guy. And, all, and, and he just kind of shows up and starts telling the kings what's what. Why? Well, because God told him to. And that's how it is. That's an amazing thing. Do you realize like in, an, in a different time in the, in the ancient world, what would happen to somebody who just showed up and started telling the kings that God's judgment was coming on them? <laughs> Done. But not, not here, because these kings believe in Yahweh. They believe there's a God. They believe that they have an authority that's over them. And so these prophets can speak truth to that. All of that plays out here at our church in all kinds of different ways. I would suggest to you that our convictions about parenting, about having a plurality of elders, more than one of us doing this thing, about church government, about expositional preaching, about gospel-rich, scripture-filled music, all of that comes from this. Who's the authority? Is Rush the authority? Nah. Rush isn't the authority. Does he have authority? Yeah, he does have authority. Should we listen to him? Yeah, we should. I should listen to Kevin too. Absolutely. But guess what? Ultimately, God is. Anybody can come back and say, this is, the, this is what the gospel is, and you're not walking in line with the gospel. Because that's the authority. That's why this is at the center of what we do. That's why this is what we talk about. That's why this is what we sing to one another. That's why when we're making a decision, we're going to come back and say, what does God say about it? Because the authority belongs here. And we don't have to throw it all out. It provides these kind of checks and balances. It it, it affirms the reality that all of us are human and we'll get things wrong. But this authority is rooted and grounded in what we just sang about, the resurrection of Jesus. Why can we trust that, that this matters? Because the gospel is true. How do we know the gospel is true? Because Jesus Christ rose from the dead. That's Paul's point here at the end. Did Christ die needlessly? No, he didn't. He'll say elsewhere, if Christ wasn't raised, then, then what's the point, essentially? The, the centrality of what Jesus did provides the basis for everything that you and I to get, do together as believers. I would encourage you to think about this this morning. Especially if you don't know Jesus. But even for those of you who do, because we're all working on understanding this gospel better, you cannot avoid having authority. You're a creature. There are things you can't do. You're going to have to accept somebody's word on something. You're going to have to listen to what somebody says about a law, about this, that, or the other. You're going to be under authority. You cannot avoid not being under authority. But remember, all of the things that you believe are like that Wikipedia page. So what are your options? What can you do? On the one hand, you could just refuse to answer the question about authority, just accept whatever you're told and say, that's just how I feel about it. We could do that. But if we're thinking together about it, we can immediately see that you don't even know where those came from. You don't know who told you that. You don't know how true that is until you've taken the time to look at it in light of the gospel. 
We could, like, we could be like planting as drunk, seeking to answer some questions arbitrarily because they're under the light and just leave the other ones out, but we're then going to not know a lot about our lives. Or we can embrace this gospel view of authority. It, it embraces and includes our limited perspective, our finite, our creatureliness. But it also gives us a check for those who would abuse it because no person has that ultimate authority. Just like Paul does here, any believer can call any other believer to the carpet and tell them that they're out of step with the gospel. That's what this authority looks like. And I want to suggest to you, when it comes to thinking about authority, that's the only way to live. Because we can affirm the truth, but we don't have to insist that we understand every last bit of it. The last way that the gospel draws a line across our lives is that the gospel is the source of authentic flourishing. The gospel is the source of authentic flourishing. I'm just going to read these last couple of verses again together. I have been crucified with Christ. And it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. What an amazing, counterintuitive, upside-down statement that is. The alive self, the living self, is the crucified self. The one that's hung on the cross and tortured to death. That's the one that's living. What does Paul mean when he says in verse 19, for through the law I died to the law? Paul uses this in a number of places, and your commentators will point out that he uses it about himself, sin, the world. And what he's saying is that his ties to those have been so decisively altered by his union with Christ that they no longer control, dominate, or define his existence. The ties to the law are now cut, severed. They no longer define his existence. This means throwing away old ways of finding acceptance. The law, remember, it gave them a, a to-do list. It said, do this and live. Eat, with, eat this way, live with these people, live here, buy this, do that. This is how you will know that you belong to God's people. This is how you will find justification. Your world and your life has all kinds of things telling you what success looks like. Money, family, investments, building others up, helping others. In all these ways, we can try to find life. We can try to say, this is it. This is, this is what's really good. We can seek to maximize good times to make ourselves feel better. But in the end, is that, is that really what life is all about? There's a tremendous uh, uh, illustration in the book um, Brave New World by Aldous Huxley. That's a classic for some folks. Maybe you read it in high school or something. It, it, that one is, in, it is a fantastic thing in this story where the people in that world, in that futuristic world where everyone is supposed to be happy and living in this perfect utopia, they don't always love the world that they're living in. 
But one of the things they can do is they can, they can grab a pill, they call it soma, and they can pop that pill whenever they start to not feel great about life. And guess what? It makes them feel good. They're feeling fine again. Did it do anything about their world? Did it change anything? No. They just feel better now. Is that flourishing? Is one of the questions that Huxley asks in that book. Is it? If you, could, if you could just make, nothing really goes away, all the bad stuff is still there, but you feel okay every day. Is that really something that we would want to have happen? That can't be, that kind of happiness, that can't be what flourishing looks like. And yet that is very often the, measure, the measuring stick that people use. Are we happy? Are we healthy? Do we have a long lifespan? Brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ didn't live very long, was not wealthy, didn't have a family. By all the metrics that people use for human flourishing, he was a failure. He died, he suffered, he was crucified. Guess what? The Bible affirms for us that's flourishing. You want to see human life live to the absolute max, look in the face of Jesus Christ hanging on the cross. Do you hear how scandalous that sounds? It's so backwards. It it doesn't make any sense with just our fleshly perspective. But that is exactly what it is. Here we have this incredible picture of what success looks like. Death here leads to life. Does dying to ourself, does dying according to the law, does this mean that we, we lose our personality or our tastes or things? No, not necessarily. You're going to keep a lot of that stuff. A lot of stuff's good. It's God created. But the character of Christ begins to be formed in you. The, the, the moral attributes of God begin to, to be things that you, that you love and that you seek to model. The truth, goodness, holiness, those things become more in you as Christ is formed in you. Christianity, though, has always seemed contrary to flourishing. You know, the fact that you and I aren't sleeping in on a Sunday is contrary to flourishing for many of our neighbors who we're sharing the gospel with. I need my sleep. I gotta have my sleep. I won't, it won't be, things won't be good if I don't get my sleep. How parents are raising their kids. How do you teach them what matters? How do you teach them what traits to to focus on and which ones to to get rid of? Do you just want to raise kids who can make money and get along in the world? Is that all we're after? You see, human flourishing needs to be defined for us. It's not something that we can just accept from the world. And what we find here is that the gospel gives us this line across our lives that shows us how to walk in the world. And it makes all of the other ways that we might live, it it rules them out. It says, absolutely not, that doesn't make any sense. And there begin to be so many backwards, upside down ways that we live and things that we do. We spend time with the vulnerable in our world and in our communities. You take time to serve with the little kids at church. Why'd you do that? 
you know what? They're not even going to remember it. Guess what? It's a good thing. God is at work. God is doing something bigger than you know. No, it's not immediately rewarding. No, they're not going to usually run up to you and say, wow, that was amazing. I learned this thing and it was so great. And whatever. Like, no, it's not going to happen. But guess what? That's the sort of ministry that God is calling us all to. He's calling us to people who, who maybe can't even express what they need and will struggle to understand it. You know, as we seek to, to be a church that sends out more missionaries to different parts of the world in difficult places, our friends, neighbors, family members are not going to understand it. See, I mean, some of them make sense. Like, you know, when you go to a big city and a, and a big place or whatever, oh yeah, like that's, that sounds great. But for those who will just go spend time in a village in the middle of nowhere where no one's ever going to hear their name, no one's ever going to know what they did, that's flourishing. When you wake up tomorrow and you do the thing that God is calling you to do, when you spend those moments in prayer, when you open the Bible and you listen for the voice of God, it seems insignificant. And guess what? It might not feel super woo, like magical. But God is doing something. In these little ways, this is flourishing. Which really brings us down to it. Some of us really want to go on carrying phone money around. We think we're living in a payphone world. If you know Christ, you don't live there anymore. There are old habits that it's time to get rid of. And you can because of the Spirit. There are old ways that you live that you don't need to live in anymore. There are things that have control over you that you don't need to, to live in anymore. You can share and confess with a, with a brother or sister and you can begin to live in a new way. This new reality tells us that, that we are accepted. You're accepted. You belong. You're declared righteous in Christ. It's not something that you earned. It comes from faith. So all of the other fake acceptances, the fake justifications, they all seemed so real and important back then. Now we can't even imagine why we would care. The volume on the authorities that used to matter gets turned down. I don't care what they say. Let them say whatever they want about it. It doesn't matter. What does God say about me? So just like you'd have no problem throwing away pagers and laser discs and all the rest, because it doesn't make sense in 2023. You and I can walk this line. We can live in a new reality, a new place, and a new way, throwing away sin, getting rid of the law because we are dead to it. All of it can be thrown away because we have a justification that matters. This is the reality. Let's go about reminding ourselves and our neighbors of that reality. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you again for your word. 
I pray in particular that your Holy Spirit would allow us to hear the message that you have for us to hear this morning. Pray that you would remove my shortcomings and help us each to hear clearly broadcast your message of grace, of all of the things that belong to us by faith. Help us to know and believe the reality that we are united with Christ by faith. Help us to walk along the line that that creates. Help us to see the new reality. Help the old things to to just fade away and pass away and help us to see all the more the new life that you have for us. Help us to love that, to desire you above all else. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.